Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at adces24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, conversations with the diabetes care team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Kirsten Yale, Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Today, we're exploring faith-based settings and how you can cross cultural boundaries to serve vulnerable populations. We've got Diana Malkin-Washim with us today to talk about her DSMES project offered through a mosque. Diana, welcome to the huddle. How are you? It's so good to be here. Well, we are so happy to have you. And, you know, me especially because I've so enjoyed getting to know you and your team over this past year on these the Reaching Out for Better Health program. You are one of our awardees, which is why you're here talking to us today. And just to give a little background to our listeners, the Reaching Out for Better Health projects that ADCES funded were really about funding innovative projects to three sites in 2019 to reach vulnerable populations with um, DSMES. So you are one of the people we funded. We were so excited about your program. But before we jump into that, I would love for our audience to get to hear about you and your background and how you ended up in the Bronx. It was a natural journey. In another life, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. So I did my volunteer or my service down in the Dominican Republic. So here I am in the Bronx and I don't really have to take the JetBlue airlines to the DR because everybody's here in the Bronx. So it's really great to be here. So as a Peace Corps volunteer, again, I was a, a nutritionist down there. And then from there, I came back into the country and I did my master's. And then I was working for Helen Keller International. So I was working with people in the vitamin A arena and I was backstopping Indonesia. So that area, part of the world. So I traveled over there and did some evaluating, evaluation of programs of um, deficiency of vitamin A and soliciting from the WHO for vitamin A capsules. As a Peace Corps volunteer, that lends itself to incredible training for reaching vulnerable populations. I'm not sure. It's actually, I think it'd be an interesting question to find out how many diabetes care and education specialists actually have that kind of background. But did that drive you at all in your career early on being in the Peace Corps? I think so. Anyone who do, who's a return Peace Corps volunteer, I think it stays with you for the rest of your life because there are very specific goals when you're a volunteer. You know, I've always been in service all my life. So that was just a supplement. I've always wanted to be uh, living abroad and that just gave me the tools to do it because I was able to live overseas and somebody paid me to do what I love to do. So yeah, and then, you know, after working for Helen Keller International and just getting my master's at NYU, I was doing other community health work. I also worked 
with Cornell Cooperative Extension. And then I also worked as a clinical manager for Animus is no longer in business, you know, with J&J. And then from there, I was hired to run a diabetes program. So I started this diabetes program where we are right now here in the Bronx back in 2010. So it was just me. And then we now, I now have a staff of five or six, still looking to hire some more. Since 2011, we've been accredited. So very proud of my team. And then when I saw the opportunity to receive some money to expand some more community nutrition work, um, working with the Moscow in the community, which is only about five or 10 minutes from the um, hospital, I just jumped on it because it was a great opportunity to do some training to train and model. What I've learned about you and your team and just what you've talked about today is this broad experience of nonprofits, academia, industry, health systems, and you and your team really know how to work in many different systems. But I think the most interesting thing and the most fun part about has been learning along with you guys as you've started working with this Muslim population in the Bronx. So can you tell us a little bit about your project? Yeah. So again, anything on paper, you have to be prepared for the unexpected. So this project Um, We actually did what we said we were going to do on paper. And then, of course, there's always bumps in the road. So the model was training the trainers. So there's the RDCDE who would train community health workers. And we identified a few from the hospital and one or two people from the Muslim mosque. And we trained them on several health topics. And from there, the community health workers was training the group members from the mosque um, once a month. So we would train the community health workers. We gave them all the tools that they needed, whether it was a slide deck, whether it was just verbal support. And we would go in there and we would cater the food and we had to use the caterer from the Muslim mosque. Otherwise, that was a no-no. We learned that rather quickly. So when they did that education every month and the topic was every, it was different every month, we tried to do a pre and post knowledge assessment. So that was really interesting. One of the things we also did was we went there every month to observe, but the observation turned into being a Q&A from the group members. So the community members would start educating, but they had all these questions that the community health workers couldn't answer and try to anticipate the questions that they would receive prior to the monthly education. But again, We couldn't anticipate all the questions. So we ended up answering a lot of the questions when the community members were educating. And along with education, we were collecting data. We were collecting A1C. So we also had an A1C machine. We tried to do a blood pressure, but that didn't happen. And we did weight. So we had a BMI and we also had a baseline for our A1C. And we had at the end um, some blood sugars. Yep. I think the training the trainers and especially training the trainers in this faith-based setting was really the sustainability piece of your project. But why did you choose a faith-based setting for this? Because one of the things that we were not doing as part of our diabetes self-management education program is really reaching out into the community. So that was one thing. And then we decided to do a faith-based organization. And it turned out that one of the community health workers was an imam, which is a spiritual leader. So we had a connection to the Muslim mosque. And we thought, I thought like, wow, this is a great in because you needed someone who was part of that faith, who knew them, who was well-respected by the group members. 
And he basically introduced us to the elders. In fact, we had to be interviewed probably several times in order for we actually to go into the Muslim mosque. You know, we had to answer a lot of questions because there was a lot of skepticism. There was a little bit of distrust of the medical system. I believe historically they've been used. And that's one thing I'm very cognizant of, you know, public health 101 is if you're going to do some screening, you have to follow up. And also you don't want to go into a population and not do anything about it. In other words, you're collecting information, you're, you know, receiving without giving back. So you brought up a really good point about sustainability. In our last advisory meeting, that concept came up and the imam, the community health worker, is so energized. He said he wants to continue this. Now, we're not going to go back, but the fact that he wants to continue the education and continue supporting his group members, and as a spiritual leader, that is part of his role. So we said, absolutely, and we will always support you, whether it's materials, whether it's just information. So Diana, can we go back for a minute? You said something that really resonated with me when you were talking about the mosque actually had questions for you and your group. And I think it's really important to think about communication. We always, you know, I think it's just this natural human function to go in and say, okay, I've got this research project and I'm going to go in and I'm just going to tell people what I want them to do. But that's not how you gain trust. And and again, the communication goes two ways. So I'm curious, what kind of questions did the mosque have for you? Prior to us coming in doing the education? Right, exactly. Yeah, so um, that was really critical. In fact, when we were asked to come in the first time and even the second time, I always was under the impression it was going to be a small, little, intimate conversation with maybe four or five, maybe six, eight people. This was maybe 75 people. Okay, now not everybody was an elder and not everybody was speaking. So it was just a few, even though everyone had the opportunity to ask questions. So some of the questions was, you know, what was the blood samples for? What are you going to do with the information? Is it going to be anonymous? Are you going to take our names? You know, a lot of it is what are you going to do with the information and especially about publishing? Mm -hmm. So we were very clear about everything was, you know, was de-identified and we weren't going to use anyone's name. In fact, we use cell numbers to identify each person and we tried to use numbers that were attached to maybe the consent forms or the demographic form or, you know, the same number, but it turned out the cell numbers were, was better um, because everyone, you know, knew their cell number. I think the questions were really, what are you going to do with the information? So really it's more of, it was a privacy issue and you were able to gain enough trust that they believed you. And then they were really interested in the goals of the program, right? They were interested in the education, but they were nervous. Mm -hmm. And then there were questions about money and just the medical system, like they received bills that they shouldn't have received bills, things that were even, were not even associated with the project. One of the benefit was I brought one of my primary care physicians, who's also from one of the countries that many of the members are from. And he also has a lot of respect from these group members because he's been there before prior, maybe presenting, doing our presentation. And some of the group members are also patients of the hospital, not everybody. And that's one of the reasons, one of the part of the grant was that identifying either patients who had prediabetes, elevated A1Cs, 
to encourage them if they didn't have a doctor of their own to come back to seek healthcare from one of our physicians or healthcare providers or even their diabetes educator. The majority of those people have never had a conversation with a certified diabetes educator, never mind a registered dietitian. So that was really critical. And I really liked that. And we found out a lot through data and just by talking to them, you know, one-on-one. So do you think you were able to achieve that? Are people now going to come in to see either previous or new healthcare providers? You know, we had a list and we did call. Well, I didn't call, but I had um, Imam call. Mm -hmm. The majority of the people that we did screen had Mm prediabetes. There was just a small percentage that very high A1Cs. They either were on medication or they weren't taking their medication. They did have a doctor that haven't seen a doctor. And then there was a very small percentage who had extremely high A1Cs that didn't want to be part of this QI research, the quality improvement research, or didn't want to be a part of it, was very curious about their blood sugars. And they were extremely high to the point that I almost sent some of them to the emergency room. I was just, and, you know, and they didn't realize how elevated their A1C was. So we made sure we followed up with them to call them, to invite them and scheduled appointments and things of that nature. One of the things that we do have on Saturdays is we've identified, I mean, they've had prior even to this QI research that they do see a lot of this population on a Saturday in a different clinic, that one of my staff persons actually sees them. So that's been going on for a while. The fact that we did this research there, I think that they were very proud of being part of this. Has anything really changed? I don't know, because I think there was still a language barrier. Because when we were doing the pre and post knowledge, they did it as groups. It wasn't an individual. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you know what I would say is, Diana, you know, what's changed is... Maybe not the particular outcomes for people with diabetes or prediabetes right now, but what's changed is our perception and our understanding and what you're sharing right now with this, you know, really huge broad population of how to access a population that really needs you. Can I just take a quick turn because I want to talk some of the most interesting parts about your project this whole past year have been the major challenges And the one thing that you said to me last year that has just stuck with me, and I share it all the time with people, where you said one of your major learnings was culture overrides behavior. And I think that that was weaved through many of the challenges you encountered. Can you share with us those challenges? I would think it would be great for our listeners to hear about that. Yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to something really simple that, you know, I teach my students, I tell my interns, is that you really need to know your target audience. You need to know who's sitting in front of you. You need to understand their culture and have that level of, it's beyond empathy. Really asking some questions that are not too sensitive, but sensitive at the same time. So, you know, I think culture really plays into biases, personal biases, what you think that you know, you may be pleasantly surprised that, you know, there was so many aha moments. Like, you know, we'd go in there and we're collecting some blood samples and we're weighing people and we kind of had things down, you know, we're doing this and then we're doing that. And all of a sudden at four o'clock, we had to stop everything because they had to pray, pray for about, I don't know, 15, 17 minutes, and then we resumed what we were doing. 
So it was kind of a shift and we had to go with that. And being incredibly flexible was really important during this project. And I think that goes back to my training as a Peace Corps volunteer. I learned that so quickly when I entered that country. And no matter where I go in the world, I think the skill, and maybe it is a skill or maybe it's a, I don't know if it's personality. I think it's a skill that you learn. You have to be flexible and expect the unexpected. I think that's absolutely a skill. And I'd also say when you're talking about being flexible, I'm going to bring us back to where you were talking about empathy. Certainly we should all be empathetic. And I think it's something we rely on. If you think about, you can be empathetic if you understand or have been in someone's shoes before, but if you've never been in their shoes, I think the best thing you can do is try to be flexible, understand, and respect that person. I think you're absolutely correct. You know, it's almost as if you could, for any culture you go into, any different any different group that you're unfamiliar with, you almost could go with a checklist, right? Like, I'm going to have a checklist on how to communicate and communicate is so much beyond verbal communication. It's the nonverbal that's 96% of communication, right? We all know that. It's almost like for any culture you go into, here's the checklist. And I think we all have to be honest with ourselves that the world is a pretty big place. And there's so many different cultures. I mean, there's thousands of different cultures and we're not going to know all of them. Yeah. Okay, Diana, we're getting close to the end of our time. So I want to make sure we get a couple more questions in here. Sure. Any more tips you can talk to about, especially your communication tips and maybe about your focus groups or things like that that you learned along the way? Yeah. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, we weren't able to get in there to do a focus group, but we did go in there and we did communicate a lot. And I would have to say we've made a couple of mistakes by assuming that we were doing them a favor by using outside caterers. And that was a huge mistake. We had to use the inside caterer because the inside caterer knew the exact type of food, even though one of our community health workers was also part of this culture. But that was a huge mistake. And in fact, that caused a big ruckus. So again, going back to knowing your audience and asking questions, What we did was we presented the quality improvement research. We were fully transparent. We didn't hide anything. And I think that's really important. You can't assume, like you don't want to tell them for assuming that they may be fearful of whatever it may be. You just have to be totally transparent. The more honest you are, you're um, meeting their expectations. So, you know, you're saying this is what we're going to do. This is a time frame is this okay? And accept the feedback, except like if they're saying no, then okay. And I wouldn't even, you know, say yes to that no, and then do it anyway. Like that's the biggest mistake you could do. So I think being totally honest, being totally transparent and asking a lot of questions is really important. I'm going to go back to your point that you made, you know, over the year so many times, which I loved was that culture overrides behavior. And, you know, if you have something like this checklist or, Instead of just talking to one person, because, you know, you, I think you mentioned early on, you talked to one person, but they didn't know everything and they couldn't think of everything to share with you. Maybe somebody walking into a different culture says, hey, I need to get a cohort of people to, you know, walk through this checklist with me to make sure I'm hitting everything. And it's not surprising to me that you'd walk into like, okay, surprising to me now because I've gone through this year with you. But, you know, going forward, I can see you'd probably want to use a caterer from whatever culture you were in. That would almost be a kindness and a respectfulness that you'd be offering them. And that's something, you know, we learned from this project. 
Okay, so we are almost near the end here. Can I ask anything that you want to share that we haven't covered? I sometimes say words of wisdom or major takeaways. What do you want to leave our listeners with? I would say the biggest thing that I wanted from this was going back to the original concept of sustainability. That is really important when you're in public health, community nutrition is sustainability. When you're going into an environment, so you're sharing, you're sharing knowledge, and then you're pulling away. Now it ends. What do you have left? I think it's really important that there's one or two people in that community is able to take it and still move with it so they can still share that knowledge, you know, with other families. And my example is, again, is this Muslim mosque. And I think you may not think that you make an impact, but you do. Usually you do make an impact with multiple people, uh, more than just one person, especially because this was a pretty big project. And I, in the last advisory group, it wasn't me who brought up the sustainability. In fact, it was a community health worker, the imam, who was very excited about it. So the takeaway is you never know how things end, but I think you need to plan for things to continue. Things don't just end. And always leave things on a good note. Because you never know. It's a very small world. The diabetes world is very small, right? <laughs> It is. It is. Well, I will tell you the sustainability piece of your program was probably one of the biggest points that and one of the reasons the ADCES funded it. And we know because we know you and your program that those people that the community health workers that are now trained, we know that they can always come back and ask you guys questions. And that's also the sustainability piece, too, that you've built relationships that are going to be lasting. So, Diana, thank you so much. I just want to say one thing, though. I know I'm running out of time, but because of this, and word did get out, there was there's another faith-based organization that really wants to get involved and spoke to the primary care physician who I work very closely with. So the plan is to go into that faith-based organization. And I think we may do things a little bit differently where I think we're going to put a little bit more responsibility onto the community health workers. So I'm really excited about that. There you go. That's sustainability right there because the program's growing and you're expanding and word of mouth happened. And so there you go. It's just a different kind of sustainability, but it's happening and it's exciting. Yeah. So thank you, Diana, so much for joining us. And hey, maybe in another year, when you have you know, your new program going, new people trained, we would love to hear from you again. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for the funding and the support. And you guys are great. It's been a lot of fun. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. Today, we heard from Diana Malkin-Washim about the challenges of working in a faith-based setting and across cultural boundaries. We learned that working in community settings can be an effective tool in reaching vulnerable populations. Look at challenges through the eyes of those you are serving and ask questions as you progress. Remember that culture overrides behavior, so be flexible, understanding, and sensitive to the beliefs and customs of participants. And remember that sustainability is key. Look for ways participants can stay engaged once you are gone. For additional guidance on cross-cultural competency and faith-based settings, visit diabeteseducator.org forward slash cultural competency. 
The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.